Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Currently, we're in a series called From Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the letter to the Ephesians. Do you live in Northwest Arkansas and need a church home? Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville. Now, if you have any questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can contact us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, entitled, Owner's Manual for the Church. Let's listen together. Ephesians chapter 4, if you're reading out of one of the Pew Bibles, it's page number 977. So good to see you. I missed you last Sunday. I was away in a conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I am glad to be back home. Those people are different up there. And so are you. Amen? Ephesians 4, page number 977. Actually, I want <clears throat> to begin our message another chapter over uh, because I want to kind of set a context. I, I have a, I believe the, the passage that we uh, are going to look at is one that the church desperately needs today. Not just Calvary Church, uh, but the Lord's church as a whole desperately needs the message of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 4. I appreciate Pastor Dan uh, sharing the second portion of this chapter last week, verses 7 uh, through 16. Uh, but I wanted to back up and us look at the first six verses. And actually, uh, Lord willing, we'll probably take this Sunday and next Sunday uh, on this passage. But I want to introduce it by reading one verse from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is a very dangerous doctrine going around today. It's become quite popular in recent years for people to make the statement something like this, I love Jesus, but I just hate the church, or some variation thereof. I love Jesus, but I just don't care very much about his church. And especially among a younger generation that has become quite popular somehow in, in this matter of separating Jesus from his church. And I understand the uh, emotion behind some of that. For a lot of things have been done in the name of the Lord's church. There are things that have happened in church 
in local churches like this church or like other churches around our community and around our country. There have been things that have happened in the name of the Lord that had nothing to do with the Lord, but had everything to do with the devil and his evil intentions. The church is very divided in our world today and especially in our country today. I'm going to talk more about that in some specifics next week. But the church is very divided. People have very little commitment to the church as the body of Christ, as a local organized body of believers. And because of that, this idea that I love the church, I just don't care a whole lot about, or I love Christ, I just don't care a whole lot about His church, this is, um, uh, is very common today. It's the idea that a person can have a relationship with Christ, can feel His love, and sometimes think they feel His approval while rejecting the church for which Christ died. It would be kind of like me saying to David Cook, David Cook, I love you, brother, but I just despise your wife, Karen. <laughs> or maybe to say, Stephen Abbott, I love and appreciate you and all you do for our church. But that wife you live with, Debbie, she is a real pain. Now, I understand. No matter how true that might be, I'm kidding. It's a joke. I'm kidding. How do you think those two men would feel about me? What do you think would be my relationship with them while rejecting their wives? Well, I want to tell you, it would be about the same, only not even as bad, as saying to Jesus that you love him, but then to despise his church by your actions and by your attitude. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to make a proposition that some of you are going to resist, perhaps. Some of you may not like. You could be wrong if you want to be, because this is just the truth. <laughs> You cannot love Jesus without loving His church. If you think that you can love Jesus, and if you feel like you have His approval, but you do not care for His church, you do not love His church, and you are not devoted to His church, then the Jesus you love is not the Jesus of the Bible. Because you cannot separate Christ and his bride. You cannot separate Christ and his body. The church is the body of Christ. You cannot truly love Jesus. You can't become like Jesus without loving the church for which he died. So I asked the question in relation to that verse that we read a moment ago that said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And I ask you the question, how did Christ love the church? How did Jesus love his church? Well, I could list for you at least a dozen ways, but I want to mention just three. First of all, Jesus 
loved and loves, present tense, his church steadfastly. I believe your notes up here on the screen will say intentionally. That's the, that's the idea. Jesus loves his church steadfastly. He loves his church intentionally. He loves his church deliberately and with a purpose in mind. In other words, his love for the church is not some response or reaction to you and me, but instead it's the exact opposite. Our love for him is only because he first intentionally and purposefully and steadfastly loved us. First John chapter 4 verse 19. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. It was a deliberate choice in eternity past. Jesus loves his church and he does so steadfastly. While our love ebbs and flows, while our love oftentimes is, is as fickle as the weather, understand God's love toward us is steadfast and sure and intentional and purposeful. And no matter how you respond or react to him, he just keeps on loving you. Husbands, love your wives in that way because that's the way Christ loves his church. Not only did he love his church steadfastly, but he loved the church selflessly. I believe your notes will say submissively or humbly. Jesus was selfless in his love. When he washed the disciples' feet, here is the creator, God, of all the universe. Here is the Lord who is worthy to be worshipped. Here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords taking off his garments, wrapping himself in a towel, getting down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of his disciples. That is selflessness. That is humility in action. That is submissiveness. It is the submissiveness that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through verse 11, where he says, Let nothing be done in the church out of vain emptiness or conceit. I tell you, many of the things done in church are done out of selfish conceit. But Paul said it should not be that way. Instead, you should be like Jesus, who was willing to lay aside all of his glory of heaven, who was willing to, to let go of his rightful position and to become an embryo in the womb of a young teenage girl living in lowly Palestine and to be born in a, a stall, an animal uh, stall, to be laid in a manger and to live a life of poverty. He gave himself away on every level and he did that for you and me and he gave himself completely without reservation Humbly, submissively, he laid down his life on our behalf. Husbands, love your wives in that way. Selflessly, submissively, humbly. And also, listen, love Jesus that way. It's how he loves the church. So he loved the church steadfastly. He loved the church selflessly. Third, he loved the church sacrificially. 
sacrificially. He gave himself as a ransom for you and me. That's what the Bible says in Mark chapter 1, verse 45. He died in our place. He gave up his back to those who would lay the cat of nine tails and shred the muscle and the flesh like ribbons. He gave his face to those who would smite him and hit him and beat him and rip the beard from his face, taking large chunks of flesh with it. He gave himself to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross, to die on our behalf. He died a sacrificial, submissive, steadfast, loving life for you and me. Husbands, give yourself away for your wives. Now, our text is not Ephesians chapter 5. But he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So let me ask you, if Christ loved the church steadfastly, submissively, and sacrificially, if he loved the church in that way, why in the world should he be pleased with you and me if we don't even consider the church of any value today? Now, I realize most of you consider the church of great value. Maybe everybody here. But do you love the church? Do you love the church as you love Christ? You can't love Jesus without loving his church. So that's the key truth that I want to set the stage for everything else I'm going to say today and next Sunday. You can't love Jesus, let alone be like Jesus, without loving the things he loves. You can't truly love Jesus without loving the church for which he died. So with that in mind, hear these words from chapter 4 as I read. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he continues on with the text you heard last week. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul does this quite often, as I've shared with you. In his letters, he begins the first part of the letter with great doctrinal or theological truth. And he sets forth great truths, uh, eternal truths that we need to know, that we need to grasp, that we need to soak in and let it be a part of, of the very DNA of our heart and life, our spirit, our service to him. And then somewhere midway in his letter, he'll shift gears and he'll say, because of all of this, because these things are true, now you need to live and walk 
in this way. First half, doctrinal, theological. Second half, practical, how to flesh that out in daily life. We finish chapter 3, which is the doctrinal and the doxology part of this great letter. Now he begins to apply these truths to how we live and walk in this world. In fact, he uses that word. He said in verse 1, I urge you, therefore, he said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. We've talked about how to believe and what to believe. Now I want to talk to you about how to walk. Basically, what that word walk means is how to live. And he's what, what he's beginning to describe in chapter 4 through chapter 6 is the new humanity in earthly life. Remember, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we discovered that, that this new creation in Christ is a whole new humanity. Before, everything was Jew and Gentile, the whole human race. But now he has torn down that middle wall of partition dividing the two, and he's made out of the two a whole new human race. This is the church. This is the family of God. This is the people of God. This is the body and the bride of Jesus Christ. And we see it in local expressions like the church at Ephesus or the churches that were dotted around Galatia or the church at Philippi or the church at Corinth or the church at Calvary at 1410 Porter Road, Fayetteville, Arkansas. These are local visible expressions of this one new humanity of which we all belong as born-again Christians. And he's appealing to this new humanity, live this way. Yes, you are sinful, but I have forgiven you of your sins, and I've given you power, the power of the Spirit, and I've given you the truth of my word, and now you need to live in a different way than you lived before. You need to live in a different way than the world lives. Colossians 2 and 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And that's what he's saying here. This new humanity living in earthly life is expressed in our walk in Jesus Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, the key word was wealth. This is what we have as a result of Christ. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, the key word is walk. This is how we live as a result of the treasure God has lavished upon our lives. Do you get it? I'm, do I need to keep on bearing down? I, I, can, I can say it five more different ways. But do you understand God has done this for you? He's made you wealthy in Him. Now walk a different walk than you lived before you knew Christ. And that's what he's saying here. One writer, Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on Ephesians says this. Listen to his words. The readers have been reminded of the high destiny to which God has called them 
And now they are shown that the hope or the confidence of this calling requires them to live lives in keeping with it. God has called you to a high destiny. Now you're responsible to live a life in keeping with that. Behavior, listen now, behavior is thus seen in Ephesians as both response to what God has done in Christ and as the proper accompaniment to the praise of God. The two themes present in chapters 1 through 3. What did he just say in that last sentence? That how we live, our behavior, our walk, our conduct, that this is in response to what God has done for us in Christ, and it's also the right accompaniment to our worship and our praise. To praise God with the lips and not live out that life in day-to-day existence is to absolutely be guilty of hypocrisy. Okay? So this is what he's talking about. Well, what has he called us? Look what he said in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, remember he is in Roman house arrest. He is a prisoner for his message and for his faith in Christ. He's a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you, I am beseeching you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now pause for just a minute and ask the question, what is our calling? What is our calling? If you go down just a verse or two to verse 3, he talks about being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity. We are called to unity. That's why we began with Psalm 133 this morning. How precious it is. How wonderful it is when brethren walk together in unity. Never has there been a time in history that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been so divided, so segmented, so absolutely in conflict with one another. In America, it's led to an absolute epidemic of a total neglect of church or of an idea that I can worship God as well at home, I can worship God as well online, I can worship God as well out under a tree somewhere, away from other people. It's led to an epidemic of individualism, which is an abomination to God. That's not what the church is all about. God did not write the Word of God to you as an individual. These epistles are written to local churches Churches congregated, churches living in covenant with God and with each other. But we're experiencing an epidemic of individualism, isolationism, church hopping and church shopping of people going from here to there, over to there, to somewhere else to try to find some place that pleases me more. And I'm going to tell you, nothing is further from the Spirit of Christ than that. Now, there are reasons to leave churches and change churches. There certainly are. But those reasons are precious few. The excuses people offer up is a list longer than my arm. 
We'll talk about that more next Sunday. You might not want to be here. I don't know. I'm not so looking forward to it myself, but it's just the truth. Well, what is it God wants in His church? He wants unity. What is it more than anything else that demonstrates the, the presence of Christ and the Spirit of Christ? It is true unity among Christian people. True unity in spite of all of our differences, in spite of all of our different backgrounds. Listen, we have more in common than we know, and he's talking about that in this passage. We have been called to walk in a manner that will produce and will strengthen unity in the church. I've got three points in this message. I'm going to give you one point, and we're going to be through for today, okay? So I want you to ask or follow me as I ask this question. What is the need for unity? Why do we need unity in the church? Verse 1 answers that question for us. And I give you two responses to it. First of all, it is a calling. He said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. If you were a child of God, you have received a calling from the Lord. He called you out of your sin. He called you out of your dead, separated, condemned condition to himself. He called you to him, for if he had not called you, you would have never come on your own. In fact, if he had not enabled you, if he had not quickened you, made you alive, if he had not breathed the Spirit into you, if he had not chosen you in eternity past, you would have never chosen him because there was nothing good in you or me that would be uh, wanting to be close to God. And on top of that, we were dead in our sins. We couldn't choose him until he called us to himself. But you've received not just a calling to salvation. This calling is, is, to, is to much more than that. This is what one person said. The idea seems to be that of the summons of God to each one of us to be that which God created us to be and meant us to be. God has given you a summons. God has given you a call. God has summoned you to become everything He intended you to be when He saved you. He didn't just save you to get you out of hell and give you a home of, in heaven, although that's probably the main thought on our minds, but He called you to more than that. He called you to live a life that, that represents what, what it means to be His people in this world. This is what Paul most frequently brings forward as a motive for the best and highest life. He does not so much appeal to us on the ground of fear for the consequences of sin, on the ground of punishment or the anger of God, but He appeals to us on the basis of the greatness and nobility of that life which God calls on His sons and daughters to lead. God has His ideal for each of us. Do you not want what God wants for your life? He's not saying live for Him, live in unity, walk in the Spirit, 
fulfill your calling because you're afraid of being punished? He's not saying that you should do it on the basis of, of his anger if you don't. But when he saved you, his spirit was breathed into your life. Do you not want what God wants for your life? Do you not want what God planned for your life? The gospel is called the gospel of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what it means to be the people of God and to live in unity, to make peace, not stir up the peace, but make peace. The Bible says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, that we have been reconciled to God. That means at one time we were not reconciled to God. We were the enemies of Christ. The Bible tells us that in the book of Romans. But we have been reconciled to Christ. And guess what? If I have been reconciled to Christ and you have been reconciled to Christ, guess what else? We have been reconciled to each other's. And that's why that passage goes on to say, not only have we been reconciled to Christ, but we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, of making peace between people who are not at peace with each other and people who are not at peace with God. Beloved, Christianity is not just an experience. It is a walk and a way of life, and a way of living that we are called to. It is a calling. You have been called to unity with God and with your Christian brothers and sisters. You are to be a peacemaker, to preach the, the gospel of reconciliation so that other people can find real peace in life. And the second thing I want to say about this, and you'll have the message for today. Listen very closely. The success or failure of our witness as God's people depends on how committed we are to our calling to unity. The success of our witness, the success of our ministry as a church, the success of the Lord's church in this world is dependent on this whole thing called unity. Now, that ought to answer a lot of questions for you. For instance, that ought to answer the question, why is it churches have so much trouble and oftentimes struggle so much with internal conflict? Because the devil, by destroying the unity of a church, can destroy the message of the church. Okay? Why is it that there's so many segmented congregations that call themselves the true church, the true people of God? Why is it that it seems like there, there are more denominations than there are people sometimes? It's because the devil, by dividing the church up, can destroy the church's message. Now, I'm not saying there's not a reason for some of that. We'll talk more about that next time. But I want you to hear the prayer of Jesus the night 
before he was crucified. Okay? This is a portion of John chapter 17. They are in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are praying. He first of all prays for them, and he prays for himself, and then he shifts his gears, and he prays for those who are going to be saved as a result of the witness of the apostles. That means you and me. Here, 2,000 years later, he's praying for us, and he says this. I pray, this is verse 21 through 23. I pray that they, speaking of us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, resulting in, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He says it again. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I'm going to tell you, I don't know what was in Jesus' mind. I cannot tell you what he saw in his mind, but it's possible that he was thinking specifically of you with your face and with your name in his mind as he was praying. He is praying for those who are going to be saved as a result of the witness of these disciples in the ages to come. And twice in three verses, he prays for us to be one. Why? Twice he says it, so that the world would believe on him. That our unity, living out, walking this walk that we have been called to will be such a strong testimony that people will be drawn to Christ and believe the gospel message. That if we don't walk as one, if we don't live in unity, if we live fragmented, self-centered, self-exalted, self-glorifying lives as a collection of a bunch of individuals doing our own thing in the world, the message of Christ, the gospel will absolutely be neutered and nobody will be drawn to Christ and people will not be saved. And could that explain why so few are being born again, becoming Christians in our culture and in our world today? And he didn't just say that they would be one. He said, Father, that they would be one even as we are one. Let me ask you something. How do you think things are getting along inside the Trinity today? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You think they're getting along okay? I want to tell you this. The Trinity is getting along famously. They're doing great. They don't have problems. They don't have issues. They don't have competing agendas. They don't have their own personal preferences. They are one. Three, yet one. And they are in perfect agreement. And Jesus prayed for you that we would be one even as he is one with the Spirit and with the Father. 
perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Beloved, Christian unity in the body of Christ is not a fringe benefit or a luxury that's just available to some churches. It is not the absence of real people who struggle in their walk with God and with each other. It's not only available to churches where people are not sinners because there is no such church. But understand, unity is is something promised by God and made available by God. And we are empowered by the Spirit for that. In spite of all of our sin, in spite of all of our differences, in spite of all of our personalities, in fact, it's not the absence of some things, it is the presence of the power of God's Spirit as people surrender and submit themselves to Christ. As people love one another sacrificially, as people love one another steadfastly, as Christ loved the church, that we love the church in the same way, with a steadfast, selfless, sacrificial love for each other. It's the presence of those things. That's why I said that you can't love Jesus and not love his church. It's an impossibility. Jesus is not divorced from his church. The church is his bride. It is his body. One of the ways we love him is to love each other with all of our hearts. You know, I had a coach that used to say, I got so tired of hearing it. He'd say, boys, there's no I in team. How many of you heard that? There's no I in team. Well, I want to tell you something. There's an I in unity, and it's right smack dab in the middle of it. U-N-I-T-Y. You want to know where unity starts? It starts with I. It starts with you. And it starts with you. Well, I'll love them when they love me. Well, I'll treat them right when they treat me right. I'm glad Jesus didn't wait for you to deserve or earn his love before he decided to love you. Aren't you? He was intentional. He was purposeful. And if you and you and you and you and you and you and you decide I I'm going to love Jesus, and I'm going to love his church and his people. I'm going to do that steadfastly. I'm going to do that selflessly. I'm going to do that sacrificially. The Lord's church will be revolutionized, will be changed from the inside out, and never, ever will we have such power in the word and in our witness as when we live like that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Spirit that makes us one. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to love you, even as you love us, that we will love each other, that we will love your church in spite of all of the ugly things.
that sometimes have happened, that we'll love the church, this new humanity, this people of God in the world, and that we'll be those people in a way that glorifies you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.